This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is Dr. Melody Hayes. Dr. Hayes is a UCSF-trained anesthesiologist, a healer, a spiritual teacher, and a powerful voice in the psychedelic movement. Though she has worked in traditional medicine for her entire career, her spirituality is central to her being. It greatly informs her work as a physician and how she approaches human healing. Today, we talk about the function of healing circles and how she believes they can help break down intergenerational trauma. We talk about how to make the therapy model accessible for everyone, and we talk about the ways that racism and classism feed into our illusions of scarcity. We also talk about why she believes that shame is at the center of the divisiveness in our country and how we can each take ownership of the shame that we, perhaps unknowingly, thrust onto others. Really, when you try to shame someone into correction, you get obedience, but you haven't won their participation. You haven't actually transformed their consciousness through inspiration and love and higher vibration experiences, you've actually just pushed them into obedience. And so if the camera's not on, the police brutality continues, right? Okay, let's get to my chat with Dr. Melody Hayes. Can you sort of talk about sort of your own trajectory into traditional healing, from traditional healing into sort of circle healing or sort of leaving, I don't even know, Have you? do you feel like you've left traditional sort of medicine to move into this next phase of your life? I'm laughing because I'm like, no, I have not <laughs> left traditional medicine. I just did. Uh, I just came out of the OR doing, uh, providing anesthesia. 
And we are benefiting from traditional medicine. I really believe it's powerful medicine and I follow evidence-based medicine. And one day my soul just opened up and I also learned about spirit. So I am very much based on in evidence medicine and what is the what are the most current JAMA journals telling me, as well as doing downloads from Pima Children and, and Caroline Miss and other healers. So I am really in both worlds and happy to be so. I'm, I'm happy to be a traditional anesthesiologist and I'm also happy to be led by spirit. Yeah. So my journey, so I grew up in kind of working class Compton and I went on to Harvard. I majored in sociology. I've always been prou- profoundly called by faith and, and spirit has always been a part of my life. At Harvard, I studied sociology and then I went on to medical school at UCSF did my medical training there as well as my anesthesiology training at one of the best, I would say the best, sorry, MGH, but the best (laughs) anesthesiology program in the nation. And during my training, I actually experienced a period of depression and it really caused me to seek out alternative methods of healing. And what I discovered was I I underwent medical treatment with ketamine, which is a psychedelic Mm -hmm. medication. And it both transformed my own narratives about previous suffering and opened me up to just another paradigm for treating kind of nervous system disorders. So that changed my mind and also put me on another path of just doing deeper research and understanding of these traditional healing methods that are offered by psychedelic medicine. So that's how I'm here talking to you today. And for context for everyone who's listening, we met on a MAPS call, which is the a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, where you were talking, sort of leading the conversation on healing in underserved communities and how to, you know, thing, things like ketamine or MDMA when it becomes legal, or now many of these things are legal in Oregon, for example, But they're inaccessible. Therapy is inaccessible to many Americans. And one-on-one sort of approaches to healthcare, while amazing, it's expensive, it's not scalable, and people who really need it aren't getting services or help. And so that was sort of the context for how I first heard you talk. And it seems as we, you know, sort of going back to what we started this conversation with, what we see in front of us is a huge you know, and Biden said it in his speech, like, first, we need to heal. So how do you think about that? And how do you imagine, you know, I loved what you were saying in the context of building circles, like that's how communities have healed each other, sort of, always, and sort of creating this structure that's goes back to sort of who we are. How do you imagine like creating that or building that, and then seeding that into the world? So thank you so much for just inviting me to expand my heart and talk about this topic because this is just my passion. I'm really involved in just digging deeper into how we heal. I'm launching a national campaign called How We Heal, where we can just do deeper work in intimate groups and learning about how we got here and taking responsibility, participating in our own truth and reconciliation process so that we can actually do the deep work of healing. Mm. And healing... You know, our traditional medicine system thinks that healing comes in a pill, right? It's a monoamine theory of depression or anxiety. But really, if you understand sociology and epidemiology and actually just economics and, you know, philosophers like Emile Durkheim, 
Like you understand that societal stresses actually create illness, actually create mental illness, naturally create, you know, you know, what you call social anomie or increased suicide rate rates. And so although we're in a pharmacological model of illness, there's a lot of social distress as manifested by class inequality, mm-hmm. as manifested by early adverse childhood events that predispose people to everything from anxiety, depression, to coronary artery disease or cancer, increased risk for cancer. And so we understand adverse circumstances actually produce, you know, adverse health consequences. And when you think about minority communities, you actually have to understand also the allostatic load. And that means there's a stress burden that's constantly activating your nervous system, constantly activating your your endocrine system. Cortisol levels may be constantly raised that actually makes people more vulnerable. And we can see during COVID, it's a model of this is the straw that broke the camel's back, where there was such a level of already pre-existing disease and then the additional insult of this epidemic. And Mm -hmm. so... Really, when we're talking about how we heal, you know, we can have a conversation about psychedelic medicines, but I really like to go deeper and talk about the social fabric in which we live in. And then I like to go a level deeper (laughs) and talk about the stories and the relationships that we're in, because you being separated from me or thinking that we're different you have less of an experience of community. You have a less of experience, but at least I know you and I are on the same page. I just use that as an example. But if, <laughs> yeah, that, were, if that were the case, <laughs> if that were the case, some people being in the same proximity to one another, but not experiencing them as like them, that creates mm. actually a stress versus being in proximity and regardless of their size, their shape, their color, being united by a collective experience of oneness that creates like an internal spiritual bounty that creates a groundedness, right? That creates a tribe. And so Mm -hmm. healing happens through storytelling. How can I tell new stories about someone that then makes them part of my community, includes them into my, includes them in my cultural tribe? How can I participate in rituals of healing, intimacy, vulnerability, accountability, where we journey together in process of exposing our heart to one another and then build bonds and social bonds. And so when we talk about the traditions of psychedelic medicine, or actually really any healing traditions, if you read Beloved, there was a really wise, beautiful uh, healer in Beloved. And she would bring people in the, the enslaved into the woods, you know, and really take them through a ceremony saying out there yonder, they may not love your hands, but love your hands here, you know, out there Mm -hmm. yonder, they may not love your feet, love your feet here. And it was a circle to to celebrate the wholeness of this community, the wholeness of the black body, the beauty of the black body, right? Mm -hmm. I just, I'm like, praise Toni Morrison, because she changed, she changed my life with, with, I believe it was called Holy Shugs was the character. And so when we come together in circle, you know, when we come together and, you know, my own cultural traditions has had a lot of coming together in circle. When you look at the, the traditions in New Orleans of, of voodoo practices and coming together and dancing in the circles. And I've 
I've been doing capoeira and around the hoda and how we come together and, and dance in circles. And, you know, just the praise that we would sit up in my Pentecostal church and how we would, you know, come together at the altar and fall down in the Holy Spirit. All of this is traditional ritual, ritualistic ways of getting channels to spirit and channels also to connect you with your community as we're all filled with the Holy Spirit together. Mm. And so, you know, ceremonial practices and groups are transformative. And really what I feel called to bring us into a conversation uh, about is how can we as a nation form our unified circle and really have a vulnerable, open dialogue and do our truth and reconciliation process. What I hold is that you know, many societies have experienced a post-war reconstruction. So that post-war reconstruction in was post-war Germany when when Nazi Germany in one generation decide, decided to create a new culture, a new ethos, a new way of being with another with one another that said that these things will never again happen. You can look at post-apartheid. In one generation, South Africa changed its culture and not through punishment, but through truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And the fall of the Berlin Wall, there, those were two societies that were divided and needed economic processes and cultural processes to become unified. And what I hold is that America is in a failed post-war reconstruction. And mm-hmm. covid is actually like such a societal change moment. I hold that it's kind of like our post-war reconstruction period because the wound that was there has come to the surface to be healed. And so now with with the us all being at home, you know, away from our jobs and the normal structures of business, busyness to witness to take in George Floyd's murder and how this has given fire to the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the moment, this is the time to fundamentally shift our relationships and to, in this generation, to put an end to anti-Black racism and how those things have been encoded into our society. So really your your question about healing circles, it's, it's a national conversation, right? And really, you know, I'm, so, what's coming up for me is that I can see, I almost like seeing a nation around this fire. And the fire is really actually the, the burn of love, you know, the, the, the embers of love that we can actually develop for one another as we go through this process of truth and reconciliation. And, and the moment is now. And I can see I've been doing a lot of reading of Frederick Douglass and his descriptions of race in America and Martin Luther King, and I'm, you know, and they actually sound very similar. And I've just decided that it's time to turn a page and call it into this so that we can actually get to a new place of discourse. In a hundred years from now, there won't be a black leader who's still sounding like Frederick Judges or still sounding like Martin Luther King. We are actually a really, really young nation. We're not Mm -hmm. even teenagers from the perspective of, you know, you're Europe. You know, we're still toddlers trying to get the, our feet underneath us because we're such a young nation. We are a bold nation. We are an excellent nation. And I just think that we can be excellent in our love, excellent mm-hmm. in our provision of safety for everybody. 
let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So practically when we think about it, and obviously psychedelics as a heart opener or a way to sort of rush the line and take people straight to source, or to that experience of this bigger, higher power are unparalleled, right? But when you look at the divisions and you look at sort of these false, these the way that people in this country have been pitted against each other, again, going back to this sort of fear and scarcity idea, how do you start to bring, sort of how can people practically bring their circles together And how do we start the process of healing as someone who's sort of seen it happen? So one of the things we have to break down is actually this this idea of scarcity. And so one of the things that we're holding is that we live in this place of neoliberal politics that imagines that as the economy infinitely expands, there will be more creation of wealth and that the trickle down will happen. The trickle down doesn't happen. What happens is just an extreme concentration of wealth and certain hands. And so there actually isn't scarcity. The perception that we all can't have sufficiency. You know, mm-hmm. the the it's kind of like the the good enough mother, but rather the, su- the sufficient economy which other countries actually are able to provide, right? But the stories of division are actually tools of capitalism, are actually tools of how we create separation and allow certain people to be without because if I don't mm-hmm. see your full worthiness, your full potential, and this is not about race. This is actually also about gender. You know, mm-hmm. this is also and class about, and class. Yeah. And this is also about transgender. And even there's evidence about people of, of larger body sizes earning less. There's any way that I denigrate you and do not see your wholeness and do not see your worth. Then how can I also exclude you from the bounty that is this country? We are an extremely wealthy country. So number one is to actually get out of the stories of lack and scarcity. We we live in abundance. And for people who are part of the class that have the concentration of wealth to really embody the pr- principles of giving while you live, because we can fundamentally change the health outcomes, our educational outcomes. We are a proud nation. But if we just looked underneath the rug a little bit, we would realize we're not doing as well as we think we are. Mm -mm. We have the highest rate of incarceration of anyone, any nation in the world, right? So millions and millions of Americans are in jail instead of being in 
purposeful pursuits because of the stories and therefore the tracks that we put these people on, right? And not just our levels of criminalization or in, in imprisonment. Our educational outcomes are not as good. Our healthcare outcomes are not as good as some other countries. Our birth outcomes, we have states in the U.S. that have birth outcomes parallel to developing nations, you know? And so if we look under, yes, we're proud. Yes, we're wonderful. Yes, we're amazing. We are excellent. And we push ourselves hard to achieve that excellence. But can we actually push ourselves in the areas where we actually need to do better? You know, it's like over-exercising a thing that you're really good at. We're really good at capitalism. But how yeah. about we get better at love? And that love, you know, is measured in where actually there's shame and stigma. You know, Jesus was not distinct because he loved the Pharisees. Jesus was distinct because he loved the pariah, right? Because he would be in relationship with the leper, you know? Mm -hmm. And so our measure of our greatness, our measure of our strength, our measure of our love is not how we support those who have. It's actually how we support those who are the most vulnerable. And those most vulnerable aspects are the shadow side of our hearts that we need to bring into the light. And this idea, you know, and I, I just read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson and then interviewed her. So that book has been like sitting heavily on my mind because it, for me, was a Venn diagram of understanding around this idea, for example, that poor white people who are not educated, that they're voting against their interests. That's, you know, what liberals like to say, like, how can they vote against their interests? But the reality is, as she points out, they're voting for their interests because to their minds, they just don't want to be the bottom in our in our caste system. And they're clinging to this, you know, this presumption of superiority or dominance just by virtue of this color of their skin, which doesn't bear out in society, right? Like the people who are dying, these deaths of despair are poor white people. And they, their enemy is not immigrants. It's not black people. Those are not that that's, they're not the source of their woes yet. That's sort of the story that's been told to them or that's the, the perception based on, on casteism. And so it's, it's sort of easy. It's, I don't know how to sort of take away that mythology and then bring people to the table. But as you mentioned, like there's plenty of abundance. There is no reason that we couldn't assure everyone healthcare and basic income and all of these other measures of so sort of social. There's no reason we couldn't be Canada and sort of take away that pressure of survival so that we can all, the, the, te the temperature comes down and telomeres lengthen and we stop seeing each other as enemies. It just seems hard to reach people and hard to get there. So how do we, how do you sort of change people's per perspective or shift the paradigm in terms of where we need to be turning our attention? And this isn't to say like we need to live in a socialist country and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how do we start to sort of reframe the conversation so people understand that they're sort of like shadow boxing? I love this. And your mention of telomeres. I love, I love that. <laughs> so one of the things I say is that I look forward to a, a future where we say people who were once 
once thought of themselves as black, people who once thought of themselves as white, because yeah. we understand that these are merely code words for caste in America, right? Yeah. And so also one thing I think of is just, you know, I want to pry from your hand this attachment to whiteness. Mm. And I want to instead offer you a direct experience of love. And so because you have to give people something in exchange for what they think they're giving up. It's kind of like holding on to something that you think is providing you a lot of safety and security, but really it's a trap because you cannot truly know yourself as spirit and your wholeness if you're defining yourself in contrast to another. So it's a box that limits both parties. Mm, yeah. And through the experience and you know, raising my awareness and education and increasing access to psychedelic medicines through these spiritual processes that people can come to know themselves as spirit in their wholeness and their true identity as love and then choose from there to change their relationships and their stories with one another. And so, you know, I actually believe that America is a profoundly spiritual country still. And I want to invite people to live their faith and to be as, you know, ruthless about love as Jesus was. His love knew no boundaries. The real, you know, the real incarnation of Jesus. And when you look actually at every spiritual tradition, every spiritual tradition actually was a social justice movement. There is a social justice aspect of every spiritual tradition, right? To bring, to decrease divisiveness, divisiveness, to decrease your experience of others as you move further along in in the spiritual process it's, you know, it's neti, neti, not male, not female, not black, not white. And so to really actually invite people into their relationship with their own spirituality and such such a large part of our nation is, is still Christian and to ask people to live the truth of Christ and really the way that a lot of Christians are living, they've become the Pharisees. And the mm. Pharisees were the Jews who knew the law and were particular about the laws of the text. And Jesus came to live something. He fulfilled the law, but he came to live something that was beyond the law because there was a new law called love, right? It's not following the rules of the what's written down and not to, you know, not to eat on the Sabbath, but rather to follow the law that's on your heart. That's called love. Mm. And so, you know, I always say, you know, if, Jesus was around today, he would be the lepers, the women who are prostitutes, the people who were shunned by that society. He would be hanging out with a black trans woman. He would be hanging out with the people who are the most vulnerable in the society today. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the race of suicide, the race of violence, the race, the race of unemployment, the race of homelessness for some populations. That's exactly who he would be hanging with. And I think that there's something really vulnerable that I just want to say that maybe white working class or white people might feel as we talk about these populations that are vulnerable, they might feel like, well, what about me? You know, I'm Mm -hmm. struggling. And when these conversations happen, it's almost like it leaves their needs out. And, you know, I love all people. You know, I'm here to raise the stakes and the quality of life for all people. And I feel like 
uh, they feel like they're being left out of the wealth or out of a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, it's, we use these examples of these vulnerable populations, but when what, it's that all boats rise together. And as I create more health security for the people who are the most vulnerable, everyone's health, health improves, right? As I, as I create better baseline levels of education, you know, as a sociology major at Harvard, I actually focus on education inequality. As I make, create policies that create better health baseline education for every, for everyone, all boats rise together. And so when we, I just think that to include their, their vulnerable concerns about their own precarity in, into mm-hmm. the conversation and really to shift us into, I think the the limitations of language are such that somehow we keep continuing in these black or white binaries. Yes. And mm-hmm. even as we talk about moving to inclusion, how does my language limit me that I still have to describe these populations in these terms. You know, sometimes I try to get really creative and just say people with, with paler complexions or people with darker skin. But how do I just like really shift us into a new consciousness where we're not looking at, you know, to quote King, you know, we're really looking at like the content of a man's character or a woman's character. So your question is, how do we shift people? And actually, believe it or not, I'm like, we love them more. We love them harder. We love them exactly where they are. And so one of the things that I find very unfortunate is the friability and divisiveness of our conversation. So when someone is not where we want them to be, currently in our conversation, we shame them. So Mm -hmm. how dare you, blah, 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 blah. And what I understand is that you don't keep a person in relationship by constantly shaming them. What that actually does spiritually, that creates uh, an energy cycle where that person wants to come back in the next generation or in the next iteration to come back and pass forward that shame, right? Mm. And so really, when you try to shame someone into correction, you get obedience, but you haven't won their participation. You haven't Mm. actually transformed their consciousness through inspiration and love and higher vibration experiences. You've actually just pushed them into obedience. And so if the camera's not on, the police brutality continues, right? Mm -hmm. You've gotten, you know, someone to acquiesce, but not really fully in their heart to be, yes, this is my value and this is belief. This is my belief and this is who I am and this is what I stand for. So people have like various ways of getting their energy systems, their energy needs fulfilled. And really our, in our culture, we've decided that it's okay to get your energy needs fulfilled by, for some people, it's by brutality against vulnerable populations, right? Mm-hmm. And so to offer people a different way of creating meaning, purpose, connection, and to be in relationship with the people at the level that they're at and to bring them by inspiration to a level of consciousness that supports the well-being of all people. And you said too, you know, in the context of shame, it's, you know, to quote Brene Brown, shame is a tool of the oppressor. And we, it's certainly, as you, I think you said, like it's a way to get sort of obedience out of, you know, embarrassment but it isn't 
really a very effective way of shifting people or keeping them engaged. And there's certainly a lot of shaming all over the place. And I understand it. I completely understand why so many black women in particular are so frustrated. But then going to what you had said earlier, too, about can we get to this place? And again, not to say, you know, we know colorblind does not work at all. And that we particularly for our kids, like it's essential that they understand and feel comfortable talking about all the ways in which we're different. But when we start talking about blocks, and we saw it in this election, you know, the Latinx community was like, we're not a block, like stop talking about us, like we're all Mm. the same. Mm. You know, I think white women, for example, it's we're we're not the same. I'm not the same as a evangelical woman in Kansas, right? Like I'm not this we're not all the same and yet and and black people certainly not all the same, yet we we love to talk about people as blocks or single categories and we know every every single person is highly intersectional mm-hmm. and nuanced and complex and let, yet we don't bring that to any of these conversations. And then we broad stroke each other and everyone gets upset. Yeah. And so the the ability to be in, into nuance and in relationship. And there was something that you said about Black women. And I just think that, again, it's about the energetics of shaming. And mm-hmm. who do we think, you know, somehow I woke up and I was like, oh, my God, it's all about shame. And this is mm-hmm. separate from Brene Brown's work. It was just like. <laughs> Oh my God, it's all about shame. Like everything that's happening in society is about shame. Like social inequality is all about shame. It's about who gets to feel honor and who gets to be in the classes that feel shame. You know, and and really power is actually about where you put the shame, how you can displace it off of you and place it on the body of someone else. And mm. so do you create blackness as a concept and then push shame onto that? Do you uh, create a feminine woman as a concept and put shame onto that and then declare emotions and menses and all these things to be qualities of shame, right? Mm. So do you look at disability and put shame onto that? Because how could you, because we all are vulnerable at any point in our life to transitioning into that population that's disabled, right? or elderly, right? And so we take these categories and concentrate the shame into those bodies, right? So that we don't have to experience it, right? So that we don't have to feel it, feel it. So, you know, I've done my own, you know, progress through growing up in Compton, you know, very adverse kind of economic circumstances to, oh, I'm this Harvard trained doctor, right? (laughs) And I see the difference in how I'm treated, right? And how, you know, I have to be in relationship to all my intersexuality, intersectionalities, right? And so how do I hold shame, you know, in these different parts? And where do I place shame, right? And so, you know, class is definitely one of them. And how can I say, well, I'm not that, so I can rest in honor, right? I'm not that. So these are privileged ways of being, right? To be, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. able-bodied. Those, these labels of white or male or even being a part of the dominant culture or the dominant religion can create places of privilege. And so, you know, I just I just woke up at some point. I'm like, oh, my God, it's all about shame. It is really all about shame. Power is all about shame. Like the idea of a man's idea not being um, acknowledged in a meeting, right? 
or him yeah. being interrupted, right? No, no, no. My body cannot top tolerate. My system cannot tolerate a, a moment where I'm not, I'm not being acknowledged and given honor. But instead, I will shame the person who did not honor me or did not, did not give me honor. And so there's this rigidity around who receives correction, who experiences shaming. And women are socialized to be some women, not all women, because we have to like, we have to create possibilities in our stories. We talk as though all women have the same experience or all minorities have the same experience. We don't. We don't. There mm-hmm. are people who are like, racism, what is that? I've never had that happen. And I'm like, praise God, bless you. Can you tell your story more? Can you tell your story more? Because I want people to know that this is a possibility that, you know, being black or being Asian or being whatever does not mean this monolithic story. And so that other people of color understand you can walk into a new reality for yourself and we can create that reality for more and more and more people to inhabit. Just to offer another sort of shame example, just in the in the idea of it being sort of all, all of the ways that we exert power in this society was just, I interviewed Kathy Park Hong from, we wrote Minor Feelings and She's Korean American and she this really stuck with me. I just pulled out my notes where she talks about she writes watching a parent being debased like a child is the deepest shame. I cannot count the number of times I have seen my parents condescended to or mocked by white adults. And exact I mean like I think you're right. I think it is sort of the the shame torch in society that it and for women it is it puts us in that immediate like how do I fuck up and I'm not perfect and how am I not being impeccable here and for men I think that the reaction is often different which is how dare you and then you just sort of see that reverberate across culture and it is, it's just sort of a profound wound. It's a profound misunderstanding. It's a profound power that we can wield over each other, really. I mean, like, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. And I think there's such a, I think that, you know, tribe is such a vulnerable thing. Tribe is like such an intimate thing. And is as though people can see your, it's like these buttons that people can push, these places of privilege, right? Being a fluent English speaker is a, is a place of privilege. And so what's in you that when you see a place of vulnerability, you don't open and expand around that. And instead, you know, once someone said, it's who gets your patience, you know, like who are you apply patience to versus, you know, where do you invest your time? And so when you respond to a certain person with impatience it's as though they don't deserve your compassion or they don't deserve you know the same softness that you would give a loved one you know yeah. and that is a boundary of love like who one of the things I was just always in conversation with myself as growing up is who where are the boundaries of my love right where are the boundaries of my love supposed to be who am I supposed to serve right these are examples of trauma right when you see your parents being denigrated Mm-hmm. That's, that's like a trauma. And one of the things I think is really powerful about psychedelic medicine is it's one of the ways that people can release what they've picked up over a lifetime. More than that, there's, you know, if you believe in the epigenetic model of, you know, from, it's actually some really compelling 
research about, you know, from survivors of the Holocaust, from survivors of the the, the campaign of separation, the spare the child, kill the Indian campaigns that caused, you know, Indian children to be taken from your families, put into boarding schools where they experience sexual violation and cultural genocide. The trauma of that and how that's passed down epigenetically. Psychedelics have a possibility of helping people to release what they picked up, right? Mm. And helping people to release maybe what their ancestors picked up, right? So this idea of epigenetic, you know, DNA methodization that will change the pattern of your genetic expression and therefore change DNA expression, right? And so when you think about the possibility, that's on the, that's on a molecular level. I take it to the spiritual level and also to the narrative level. The possibility for psychedelic medicines that can reach all people is that people can drop every story that was told about them. Right. Mm. What I'm really passionate about is for people of color to drop stories that were told about them. Right. And for white people to drop stories of whiteness, you know, but for people of color to drop the consciousness of being even marginalized or disadvantaged because spiritually we are in our integrity, right? We are in our Mm. wholeness, but what does it mean for all of your life to be the, the, these phrase of marginalized and disadvantaged to be applied to you? Yes. There might be a liberal policy that's, you know, that's underlying these things that's trying to be advocated but if you think you're marginalized that's this core of that is the center if you're marginalized you're marginalized from the center of whiteness or you're you're marginalized from the center of capitalism rupaul has this really great quote he says that honey the only thing they have they sell poor the only thing they have is money right right but when you understand yourself and your wholeness and your integrity right so how can your consciousness raise above the stories that were told to you above the stories because this nuclear family thing is a new invention. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like all the social structures that we have are a new invention and they're actually, you know, structures of power that have been organized so that the more you're compliant with them, the more access to resources you have. And so one of the things I think about really is for immigrant communities that there's a way, if you talk to a lot of, if you talk to Asian Americans, Latino Americans, Indian Americans, there's a way in which growing up in America separates them from the their experience of love that they had in their family because they grew up eating curry. Because for me, my mama sent me sent me to school packing fried chicken and I didn't understand the bounty and the goodness, but I just felt different because like instead of having a bologna sandwich, I had last night's leftovers. But, or a Chinese man who's like complaining that, oh my God, my, my mother sh- shames me by saying, you don't make as much as your, you don't make as much as your brother. And like, I speak Mandarin and I spend a lot of time in, in Asia. And I'm just like, this is so curious because don't you know that's Chinese love? <laughs> that's like kind of like, you know, Chinese mother encouragement, right? The shadow side of that of saying is of that is saying, I think you can do better. And a message that right. I can do better is love, right? But how we've normalized like these upper white middle class ways of eating, being, and parenting that separates us from our love tradition, the wholeness that we had in our families, you know, and our Indian families could only provide Indian love and our black families could only fought, provide black love and our Asian families could only provide Asian love. And because the cultural dominance 
people are in therapy <laughs> talking about like miscommunications of love, like complete right. miscommunications of the experience of love, you know? And really, you know, for some people, the, the source of the disruption is experience of poverty. It wasn't their parents' failure to love. It's being in a system where, you know, you're making braces and getting a car when you're 16, all these examples as a measure of love versus the unity and care. And I just think it's very, it's just, it's an issue of cultural hegemony. It's an issue of, you know, of really colonialization, you know, and how Mm -hmm. some families are told that their ways of being are good and some families are told that they're not. And, you know, there's a lot of research on the different familial parenting patterns of, you know, more working class communities where it's it's mama, it's uncle, it's cousin, it's, it's grandma who contributes. But our systems don't recognize that, right? And instead of seeing the village in that in that formation, people will see this disintegration. But there's mm. far more connection, there's far more exchange, there's far more collective action in those forms of union. And so I just see everyone, there's just a way I kind of experience people as being separated from their wholeness because, you know, accept, accepting our multiplicity, accepting our like our cultural diversity. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Melody Hayes. You can find out more about her work at drmelody.com. That's D-R-M-E-L-L-O-D-Y.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.